So this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1 to 17 or 18. And so if you turn in your Bibles there or tap there on your phone, that's what we'll be looking at. <clears throat> and if you look into this, these first few verses in the New Testament, they're actually some of the most neglected verses in terms of reading and in terms of preaching. Because if you turn there and you're reading and you're thinking you're going to get to the Christmas story, you are faced with about 40 verses or 40 generations of Abraham was the father of, 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 was the father of. And it's really easy at that point to skip down to verse 18, which just sums it up and says, you know, and then, you know, in this way Jesus was born. Um, and so we don't read all those names very often, and it's often neglected. But Matthew is up to something in those verses before he gets to the birth of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Matthew doing? It's an odd way to start your gospel with a very boring list of names. Look at how John started, right? Like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's how you start a gospel, right? You start that way. Uh, Matthew starts with a list of um, 40 begats, basically, and uh, we're wondering what he's doing. Well, in order to understand what Matthew is doing there, he's really building the anticipation towards, and if you read the book of Matthew, Matthew's core theme is that Christ is the king who has come. He's the long-anticipated Messiah. He is the king who has been promised. And so he's beginning those verses with a very uh, important purpose in mind, is to introduce us to the king. But we don't understand what's going on in those names and in those genealogies and in those generations unless we understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Matthew knows we can't understand Jesus and the New Testament until we comprehend what God is doing in the Old Testament. As the incredible 20th century pastor A.W. Tozer said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so you, we have to understand the Old Testament to see what's going on in the New. And so before we get to Matthew 1, I'm going to start us back in Genesis 49, where we have been with Joseph and also in Samuel and also in the Psalms, and then we'll get to Matthew, so settle in. Um, we'll just go through the Old Testament real quick um, and understand what Matthew is doing. But this actually ties into our, our, our series a little bit on Joseph that we just finished up. As we looked into our series on Joseph, it's been one of the themes running through that series is that God is accomplishing things in Joseph's life, and we're reading about the story of Joseph, but we're also understanding that we're reading the story of Joseph's family and what God is doing in Jacob's life, and then even further, there's another layer of what God's story is that he's writing through this family that's going to become Israel, and so that the story is being written on multiple levels. And we saw that God used the evil of Joseph's brothers in order to prepare the way to rescue them from the famine and provide land for them to live in. And he basically incubates the nation of Israel in Egypt where they served for 400 years and then God leads them back to the promised land. And Joseph was all a part of that plan. Even, even his brothers trying to kill him and sell him into slavery and all of that stuff worked for God's plans. And what we see here in the story of the Old Testament leading up to the arrival of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, and what Matthew is going to show us in these names is that there is a promise, there is a covenant, there is a story that God is telling in the Old Testament that can only you can only understand the New Testament in the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we'll see it as we get into those names in just a minute, but the, the promise and the covenant really begins with Eve. 
If you go back even further to Genesis 3, and so you have to understand in Genesis 3, God says to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we have this very first indication from God that there is a promised offspring, a promised seed that is to come who is going to be the enemy of Satan, and he is going to bruise the head of Satan. And then as you move forward in Genesis 22, and we looked at this before we got into Joseph, you get God's furthering elaboration of this promise to Abraham. He says in Genesis 22, 17 to 18, he says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and your offspring shall, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so God now elaborates. So this seed, this offspring that's promised to Eve is now promised to Abraham. And that it's more than that, that through this offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And blessing to all the earth, that's a big promise. How is this going to happen? And so as you're reading through the Old Testament, there is this anticipation of this offspring, this seed that's going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened in Genesis. It hasn't happened uh, in 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 Abraham's life, it hasn't happened in Isaac's life, it hasn't happened in Jacob's life yet. There still hasn't been this offspring that has bringing a blessing to all the nations. We saw that, a shadow of it in Joseph, as he was taken into Egypt, and then he interpreted the dream, and he stored up the grain for seven years, and then there were seven years of famine, and there was grain for all the world for those seven years that was a blessing as the offspring of Jacob. And so there was a, a shadow of it there, but if we keep going past Genesis 40. Five, we get to Genesis 49 and we get to the blessing of Jacob on his sons. And as I touched on in the last message on Joseph, um, Joseph is not actually the lineage of the promise. Joseph is just a shadow of it. Judah is actually the seed or the offspring through which the promise will go through. And we saw that in the redemption of Judah in verses or chapters 48 and 49. Uh, or sorry, 47 and 48. And then when you get to Genesis 49, you get Jacob's blessing on Judah. Now listen to this, and you see how the promise is even more clearly spelled out. As Jacob blesses his son Judah, he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. This is Judah. This is the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah. And he says, in Judah's line, you notice he said there that the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. This means that the line of kingship is going, the line of authority is going to come through Judah. But we don't actually see that in Judah's life. Judah is one of many tribes of Israel, but he is not a specifically kingly tribe at this point. But it's just hints here in the Old Testament of what is to come, the anticipation of when is this promise going to come to pass. And we know that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, 
and that he's conquered and he can open the scroll with the seven seals. We see in Revelation 5, he mentions here the donkey's colt, the symbol of the Messiah's kingdom of peace in the midst of Israel, the vine. And Jesus demonstrates this when he rides a donkey into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, and his garments are washed red like wine. And this is the great exchange that takes place. His garments are stained with our sin, and our garments are washed whiter than snow, it says in Isaiah 118. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so we see in Eve, we see in Abraham, we see in Judah, uh, in Jacob's blessing of Judah, we see this foretelling of a king that is to come, but he's still not here yet. We have these big promises, but he hasn't arrived. And then the promise continues in David to an everlasting king. In 2 Samuel uh, 7.12, God says to To David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Then in verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow, this promise just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So even... Through the line of Judah comes David. David becomes a king. Looks like maybe this is the king that God is talking about. You enter into the golden age of King David and King Solomon. And, and, G- and God makes this promise that through the line of David will be a kingdom and a throne that shall be established forever. And then Psalms, if you go into the Psalms, it continues to look forward to this Messiah in anticipation Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Psalm 72 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May his people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. And so you're thinking, who is this royal son? It still hasn't happened yet. All kings of the earth are going to bow down to him. His dominion is going to be the whole earth and all the nations are going to call him blessed. But who is he? We haven't seen anything like this yet. And after this golden age of King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel actually falls into decline. The kingdom splits in two. There's a civil war. And then these separated nations, the north and the southern kingdom, are taken captive and into exile. And then after the prophet Malachi, there is complete silence from God for 400 years. And so we have these promises from Eve through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David, all these promises and in the Psalms of this king that is coming, this royal son. And then you enter into the exile and the chaos. And this is the bad news before the good news, the low point of the Old Testament. And Matthew's going to refer to it in Matthew, in his section in chapter 1. He's going to talk about the deportation and the exile into Babylon. And in Deuteronomy 28, 58 to 62, we see another side of God's promise to the people of Israel. And I'm not going to read it all, but in 28, 58 to 62, he basically tells Israel, he says, if you're not careful to do all the things of this law that are written in the book, then I'm going to allow you to suffer the afflictions that were severe and lasting and the afflictions that came upon Egypt, you will suffer all those diseases of which you were afraid and you will be destroyed. And where you were numerous as the stars of the heaven, you will be left few in number, only a remnant, because you did not obey the voice of your Lord your God. And so in the 
splitting of the kingdom and in the exile and in the silence, we see that this promise of God comes to pass as well as Israel turned away from him. And we have this recorded as well in the Bible, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Ezra, in Nehemiah, and even in some of the Psalms. Psalm 137.1 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. The people of Israel in Babylon in captivity sat down and wept as they remembered Zion, Mount Zion or Jerusalem. It says, when we remember Jerusalem and all the things that God did for us, how blessed we were as a nation and we were in exile and we were in captivity and we wept because we remembered that he said that he was going to judge us, but we didn't believe he would judge us. We didn't believe there'd be a judgment. And nobody believes there's going to be a judgment either today. This is the reality of the nation of Israel as it's reflected in our lives. We go through our lives and we don't think there's going to be a judgment. Nobody believes that anybody's going to be held accountable for what, ha- what they do today. But the Bible is clear that there's bad news before there's good news. There wouldn't be any reason for the good news if there wasn't any bad news. Why would Jesus have to come if we weren't in any trouble? The scriptures are clear. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, says in Hebrews 9.27. When Paul is preaching to the intelligentsia of Athens, he's speaking to the Greeks and to the Romans in the marketplace of ideas in the philosophical capital of the world in Athens. He doesn't soft-sell the truth of the judgment. He says to them in Acts 17, he says, the times of, of ignorance... In the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Paul basically says, this is going to happen. God has been patient and he has overlooked all the generations of ignorance up until this day. But Christ has come and he has appointed a man of righteousness by whom he is going to judge. And he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. There is a judgment day coming. And you say, well, that's horrible news. Paul, why are you preaching this so close to Christmas? That's terrible news. This is supposed to be a happy time. It is horrible news. And it would be horrible news if there wasn't good news to come with it. It's the horrible news that makes sense out of everything that Jesus had to come and do. It's the horrible news that makes sense out of why the God of the universe had to come into a muddy stable and invade our time and place in order to rescue us. It makes sense of, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. The son will bear punishment that sinners deserve so that we don't face this judgment. If God is going to preserve his royal line, what we gather from the Old Testament, what we gather from this story that we have laid out for us in the history of Israel, and this is important that you understand, this is all just preamble to get to Matthew 1, okay? Bear with me. But what you've got to understand is that if God is going to preserve his royal line, it's go- it isn't going to be on account of his people's righteousness. It's going to be in spite of his people's sin- sinfulness. If this promised king is coming, if this promised Messiah is coming, it's not going to be a royalty based on the righteousness of God's people. It's going to be in spite of their sinfulness. If there is also going to be a king, he cannot be a king that rules by law, or we all going to be guilty. He is going to have to be a king who is a king that rules by grace. He's going to have to be a king that knows suffering, a king that sympathizes with our condition. That's the king we need. And so all of the Old Testament tells this story, and I've covered it obviously very, very quickly. 
But this is what the Old Testament is leading up to before you get to the Gospels, right? You have the kings, you have the golden age, the decline of the kings, you have the exile, and then you have 400 years of silence where God does not speak to his people anymore. And all of this anticipation for the Messiah, it seems like a lost cause. This is just not going to happen. And then the very opening words of the Gospel. Matthew opens up with these 17 verses of the history of the Old Testament. And what is he trying to tell us by this? He's opening up his gospel with this with the express intention of introducing the fact that Jesus is this long-awaited king. This is the royal bloodline that leads to the Messiah that the nation of Israel has been waiting for for over 2,000 years. And so for this Jewish audience of his, for them to accept that Jesus is the king, they need kingly credentials. They need to see the bloodline. And so now we're going to read Matthew, or I'm going to read Matthew 1, 1 to 18, and it'll be up here, but just bear with me. It takes three minutes to get through this, but it'll be worth it. This is how Matthew begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. (laughs) I honestly didn't practice that. I don't know how I did that. Now, Matthew divides his generations just as I I took you through that survey of the Old Testament on purpose because we, we had to have that in our heads to understand this text and understand what Matthew is doing. Okay, Matthew is doing something significant here. He's not just wasting 17 verses on a genealogy. 
He divides his generations in such a way that he highlights these three eras of Israel's history, and he's listed them as three groups of 14 generations, and he's listing them for a theological and a legal and a royal purpose, not necessarily a historical purpose, and he's listing them in ascending order from Abraham to Jesus, focusing on the line of royal succession. This is the line through Judah, through David, through Solomon that leads to the next king of Israel. Now, you have Abraham in the era of promise and covenants. That's the era of patriarchs and judges. And then he has the second era of David, which is the era of monarchy and decline and tragedy from David to the exile. And then he has the era of the exile in verses 12 to 13 and silence and captivity and obscurity. In verses 13 and 14, he lists names. You probably recognized a lot of those names as we were reading through until we got to the last third. We, we don't know those names. We, we, don't, we don't know who those people are. They, they're, just, they're in captivity, and they're in that era of silence where God didn't speak to his people that 400 years uh, between Malachi and the New Testament. We don't know those names. It's just an era of captivity and obscurity. But those three eras, the era of promise and covenant, the era of monarchy, which was decline and tragedy and failed promise in the people of Israel, and then the era of exile and silence. Luke, if you turn to Luke, also has a genealogy, and people often compare these genealogies. And Luke has a genealogy that diverges from Matthew's, the genealogy of Mary that is by blood. So this is the royal line which leads to the king and then Mary's is a royal line as well but it's the line that 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 shows the heritage by blood and it goes in reverse order in Luke chapter 3 it's descending from Jesus back actually all the way to Adam and in the line of Mary through David's son Nathan rather than through Solomon so so Joseph Mary's husband is a descendant of Solomon in the royal line of kings. Mary is a descendant of David's other son, Nathan, and she's also a blood relative of Judah. And so Jesus comes into into the gospel. He comes into this world through the line of Judah, as was promised that we saw earlier in Genesis. Matthew is following the inheritance of the throne or the legal lineage of rulership from Judah through David to the Messiah. Luke is following the bloodline through Mary. And there's one thing that we want to notice here. I'll just point this out to you because it's important. It's just one of the many things that makes the virgin birth of Jesus so incredible. You will notice that in Joseph's line can't be the bloodline to Jesus because Joseph has a great, 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 great grandfather in his line by the name of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was one of the evil kings. And because of his evil, God cursed Jeconiah's bloodline that none of his blood offspring would ever sit on the throne. It says in Jeremiah 22:30, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. And as it turns out, even though Joseph, the husband of Mary, stands in the royal line of kingship from David, through the line of Jeconiah, it's not going to be Jeconiah's bloodline that sits on the final throne of Judah. Because Joseph isn't really Jesus' father. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' father. Mary is the bloodline that Jesus is born into, not the bloodline of Jeconiah. And so God 
preserves his promise to Jeconiah, but also preserves his promise to Judah, that a king will sit on his throne, but it won't be the bloodline of Jeconiah, because it's the virgin birth of Jesus through Mary that he ascends that throne. It's incredible how all of this just comes together here. And you have to know that all of the Jewish listeners of Matthew, they know all this history. They know all these people, they know all these names, and they know what took place. But let's look closely at what Matthew is doing now in opening up his gospel with such a a dry list of names. Why is Matthew doing this? He wants to show the people the royal bloodline of Jesus. He wants to show that this Messiah is fully qualified to take the throne as the Christ but he also wants to tell them something about what kind of king he is going to be. God is accomplishing his purposes with real people, not ideal people. And as I looked at this list and I kept reading it, one thing stood out to me as to what an odd way to start the gospel, even to introduce the kingship of Jesus Christ, this list is. It is a royal lineage and it is a pedigree for a king. But if as a pedigree and as a royal lineage, it is a list of names that is saturated in the need for grace. And that's going to be our takeaway this morning. This is a list that is made up of many questionable men. Jesus is born out of real humanity, multi-ethnic and multi-dysfunctional. We start with Abraham. He passed his wife off as his sister twice. That's where this bloodline starts. Then you get to Jacob. Talks about Jacob. We've already looked into his family dysfunction over the last eight or nine weeks, right? This is the guy who deceived everybody who he came in contact with, who his children deceived him, right? Then you get to Judah. And he and Tamar are in here as well. Judah, the one that sold Joseph into slavery, and then right after that, went and slept with Tamar. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Then you got King Ahaz and King Manasseh in here. These are kings that led the people of Israel into idolatry, even sacrificed their own children in the fires to Baal and Moloch. Then you have King David, as pointed out here. King David, Matthew doesn't gloss over it. He literally says that Solomon is born of David by the wife of Uriah. Right? Like, can you shine a bigger spotlight on the dysfunction that's going on with King David, Matthew? He's not trying to cover it up. Not only that, but King David's reign was so soaked in bloodshed and war that God would not permit him to build the temple, and he left that to his son Solomon. So all these kings of the divided kingdom that then follow, except for a few, like you have a Josiah in there who was a a reformer and a redeemer, but most of those kings that we have in there were rotten to the core. When you look at this list of pedigree or royal lineage that leads to Jesus, it's a rogues gallery. It is a group of men who who need a significant amount of grace. And we look around at our generation with human eyes and we think that the world is out of control and human sin, but God is at work. And that is the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of this list. You go through this list and you realize that if God wasn't telling his story, if God was not redeeming every circumstance of all of these people's lives and all of these kingdoms, if God was not at work through those things, then 
we would never have gotten to Jesus. This is a list of men and prophets and kings that required God's grace. And we look at the world today and we think that evil is ruling and that things are going sideways and that God can never work any good out of the things that are going on in the kingdoms and in the rulers and in the generations that we see around us. But we have to remember looking at this list that that evil king, that that misguided patriarch, that person who is leading a nation into idolatry, he stands in the line of kings that will lead to the Messiah. And it's not just questionable men. There's some dubious women here too. And it's interesting enough, and you know that Matthew is shining a spotlight on this, in the fact that he even includes women at all in the genealogy. This is a Jewish genealogy. Women really don't have any place in this. This is about what fathers begat what sons. There's no need to mention the women. And why these specific women? I mean, all these other guys had wives too. Why does Matthew only mention the wives of some of these guys? Well, the inclusion of the women are here for a reason. They put a big spotlight on why this is a list that leads to a king of grace. Tamar, we looked at briefly in Genesis 39 when we took a little detour just for a little bit from the story of Joseph. In Genesis 39, Judah, after selling Joseph into slavery, goes and he uh, he has his family and uh, one of his sons uh, is married to this woman, uh, Tamar. And she marries this woman, he, she's married to this man and he's an evil man and God strikes him down for being evil. And then the brother-in-law, Onan, who is supposed to have a child by Tamar, according to Old Testament law, to carry on the family line, he doesn't do his duty. He refuses to have a son by Tamar and so God strikes him down. And so then Tamar goes to Judah and says, uh, God has struck down two of your sons. Can you give me a third son so that you know he can do his duty according to the law? And Judah is kind of cautious about that, apparently, at this point, which makes sense, having two of his sons just struck down. Uh, but you know he basically refuses to give his son to Tamar uh, to do the family duty and carry on her line. And so Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute to get impregnated by her father-in-law so that she then has twins by her father-in-law who refused to do his duty by having his son, you know, marry her and continue the family line. Like, your Christmas family dinners are looking a lot better now, right? <laughs> like, you think your family is messed up? Like, you think you got some complicated things going on at Christmas dinner coming up? You imagine sitting down at this Christmas dinner, right? Like, this is... What we're dealing with, this is who Tamar, and she's in, she, she has these twin sons, and Perez is in the line of King David and in the line of the Messiah. She, she ends up being included here. And then you go on and you have Rahab. She's literally in, Tamar was just pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab is an actual prostitute in Jericho, right? She's an actual runner of a house she she runs a house of ill repute in jericho and she hid the spies when they were scoping out jericho and so because she hid the spies she was spared and when they overtook jericho and she was actually brought into the covenant community eventually and she had children that then led to jesus and then ruth a wonderful godly woman by every account and you're thinking paul don't badmouth ruth you can't say anything bad about ruth you know, she's a beautiful, godly woman, but the reality is she was a Moabite. 
She's the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And they were ex- the Moabites were excluded by God because of that I- evil. Israel was supposed to have nothing to do with anybody from Moab. And yet here we see that Ruth, who followed Naomi back to Israel and desired to follow her God, was folded into the covenant and was married to Boaz and became the great-grandmother of King David. And then you've got Bathsheba. She's not even mentioned by name. And I'm not going to put much blame on Bathsheba. I'm not sure why she was bathing on her roof, but I'm sure it was not to tempt King David. Right? David is the sinner here, using his power to take another man's wife and have that man killed off. But including Bathsheba, not by name, but calling her the wife of Uriah, makes it clear what aspect of the story Matthew was highlighting. Matthew was shining a spotlight on these women and on the sin and on the dysfunction that operated around them. And just as an aside, one of the things we have to realize about the Bible is that it's not an account of good people who we are supposed to emulate. If you think that the Bible is just a list of saints who we should follow, that will lead you into some serious trouble emulating these people. The Bible is a book of broken and sinful people who are carried along by the grace of God. And we make this mistake a lot as well. Understand this, the Bible is not even a book that gives us a list of things that we need to do so that God saves us. The Bible is a book that tells us what God has already done to save us in spite of our sin. The world calls these families dysfunctional. The Bible calls them sinful. We would just call them messed up. But that's the good news of this list. What sort of a royal lineage list is this that you're writing, Matthew? Why would you write your lineage and your genealogy leading to Jesus in this way and highlight these people in this manner and shine the spotlight on these women and these events? And what becomes apparent is that if God is going to bring about this promised king, he's not going to do it out of the righteousness of his people. He's going to have to do it in spite of his people. And Matthew wants to point out at the start of his gospel, as he does at the end, that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jewish nation. He's the Savior of all people. He's the Savior of Gentiles and foreigners. He's the Savior of those who have been put out. He is of those who have been cut off from God's blessing. He's the Savior of people who are liars and sinners. He's the Savior of prostitutes and murderers. He's the Savior of Canaanites and Moabites. You name it. Jesus shed his blood to save all kinds of people. The Bible, the Old Testament, and Matthew in this list does not gloss over human sin, even people in the line of Jesus, and that's why we need this Savior. Every family tree is disordered by sin. Every family tree of the whole human race is in shambles, and we need a Savior that can work in spite of our sin. We need a king who is a king not by law, but by grace. Because if he was a king by law, we would all be guilty. We need a king who can reach into our family and restore us and adopt us into a new family. Jesus is this anticipated king, but he does not rule by law. He's a king that rules by grace. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is acquainted with grief. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. The Old Testament, Mark Dever wrote a book about the Old Testament. He did a summary book of the Old Testament, and he, and he called the book, it's great, he called the book Promises Made. That's the Old Testament. 
Then he wrote another book, which was an overview of the New Testament, and he called it Promises Kept. And that's really how you can look at it. Promises made, promises kept. In the Old Testament, God is promising a land of rest. God is promising redemption from slavery. God is promising forgiveness of sin. God is promising a new heart of flesh, not stone. God is promising a king and a Messiah. He is promising peace and salvation. God is promising a perfect and everlasting king who won't mess up at the end of his reign and die and leave his people behind. And at times in the history of the Old Testament, it seems like those promises would never come to pass. The Messiah would never come. The kingdom was torn in two, and then the kingdom ceased to exist, and the kingdom died. But God purposed to keep the promise king and all his promises. And he keeps those promises in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, looking back with all of his knowledge of the Old Testament and then the revelation of the mystery of Jesus Christ, says it so perfectly in, first, in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For no matter how many promises God made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All the promises that God made in the Old Testament are yes in Jesus Christ. We don't have to wonder when the Messiah will come, when that Davidic king will come, waiting for the perfect prophet who will speak God's words perfectly, waiting for that high priest that will intercede. He's come in the most unexpected way. And all those generations of longing, all those generations of anticipation from Abraham for 2,000 years, all those centuries, even centuries of silence for 400 years when God didn't speak, the Jewish people were anticipating and anticipating and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And then you turn to the first page of the New Testament and the very first line, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, literally means... Jehovah saves. God saves. He's the anointed. He's the Messiah. He's the royal heir of David to take a throne that will never end. He's the son of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the promised seed that was even promised to Eve that would crush the head of Satan. He is the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. He is the one who will have a kingdom from sea to sea and all the nations will bow and worship. Jesus is God's chosen means of salvation for all the people of the world. And not just all the people of the world, he's God's chosen mean of salvation for you. I'll leave you with five takeaways from this list of names. Five quick things. God's dealings are with actual people, not with ideal people. Some of you have it wrong in your head that God will include good people and reject bad people. We are all bad people. We are all equally stuck before God. We all need a Savior. God's dealings are not with ideal people. God's dealings are with real people. Secondly, God used all the messy stuff of dysfunction to accomplish his purpose. You may look at your family and your life and you wonder how God can bless anything that you have done. You have messed up your life so badly that God cannot possibly bless it. God cannot possibly make any use of it. But God is a redeemer. He has given us a king that operates by grace and not by law. He is redeeming the worst of us. Whatever mess you think you are in, God is bigger and wiser and more powerful than your mess. God can take care of it if you trust him with it. Just take your mess to God. He redeems the mess of dysfunction and sin. 
Thirdly, God is not operating on our timetable. Abraham's promise took 2,000 years to come to fruition. Between Malachi and Matthew are 400 years of darkness and silence. And then Jesus came and died for sinners who had no use for him at the time. And you may look back on your life and wonder why God has been working so slowly, why there needed to be so many years of trial, or why you see that there are so many more years of trial to go. But God is not wasting any of the suffering. God is not wasting any of your years. It may appear that God is slow, but His slowness is patience in order that you can come to know Him and be saved. Fourthly, the family line of Jesus was ethnically diverse. They came from mixed blood of many nations, and Jesus shed His blood for them and for us. God is not the tribal God of the Jewish people only, but He is the Savior of the whole world. All nations and all people come to God the exact same way. It's fair for everybody. They come through the name of Jesus. And fifthly, the family line of Jesus contained moral outcasts. We are morally obligated to love the Creator with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a moral obligation that we have. And yet, the family line of Jesus contained nothing but moral outcasts. And yet, He came to save them and to save us. And so when you read this list of names that we, we skip over so often, we get to you know Matthew 1 and it's like, okay, 17, jump down here, 18, start the Christmas story. But when you understand how significant these names are, it makes sense why Matthew would start out this way. God never let go of fulfilling His promise. He overruled even all the sin of all these people, a reminder that there's a larger story than ours being written in history. Christmas is a wonderful time for us to be with family. It's a wonderful time for us to enjoy traditions and give gifts. But Christmas also brings into stark contrast the things that we're missing, our families that are broken, or the fact that we've lost someone that we're missing more than ever over our relationships that are broken. It brings into contrast for many people the fact that they've had a very distant or maybe no relationship with God at all. But because it's Christmas, Christ's Mass, God has come to rescue us through Jesus Christ. And so we can enjoy Christmas in spite of a sin-torn world. We can enjoy Christmas in spite of dysfunction and messiness in our family. We can enjoy Christmas in spite of our sin because we have a king that God has promised us and he is a king that does not rule by law. He's a king that rules by grace. He has a family line that needed his grace. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows our form. He's come to save us by grace, not by law. And that's why we can enjoy Christmas. That's why Matthew starts his gospel this way. Just to give us that list of names, to say this is the promised king, and look where he came from. He's here for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for even these 17 seemingly very boring verses. But we look at those names and we know there's nothing boring about them. And Matthew knew when he wrote them that there would be nothing boring that would come to mind when we read those names. You have written your story large on the Old Testament for us so that we would understand the hope and the joy and the promise of the New Testament. You had to show us the bad news that we would fail like Israel did, that we would never be righteous enough on our own, that we had to put our hope on a king, an everlasting king, that would not let us down. And you gave us that king in Christ Jesus. We anticipated that king and you delivered. And we put
put our hope in him. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.